chapter 11. In the Church Bible, that's page 1043. We've been working our way through Luke, and this morning we pick up at chapter 11, verse 37. Luke 11, 37, and I'll read through to chapter 12, verse 3. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible For the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, wanting to catch him in something he might say. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. This is God's Word. It's been said that the one thing you really need in the Christian life is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you've got it made. And unfortunately, sometimes people do end up faking it when it comes to the Christian life. 
But I don't think our passage this morning is about faking it. It is about hypocrisy, but not intentional hypocrisy. Jesus is dealing here with the kind of hypocrisy we're not aware of, either because it's never been pointed out to us, or because it has quietly taken root and infected our lives, just like yeast spreading through a batch of dough. And the result is that what we profess with our lips does not match up to the state of our heart and our character and our behavior. That's the definition of hypocrisy. And we have to acknowledge, of course, that until we finally stand in God's presence, finally free from every trace of sin, our lives will never perfectly match up to the truth we profess. So in that sense, we're all hypocrites all the time. Our lives always lag either a little or a lot behind our doctrine. But even as we acknowledge that, we can't ignore Jesus' command here. Be on your guard against hypocrisy. Watch out for it in your life and work to get rid of it. In our passage, Jesus exposes some of the breadth and depth of hypocrisy. He helps us by showing us what to guard against in our lives. Before we get into this, it's worth asking who this passage is aimed at. There are two groups being addressed here. There are the religious people who've made no commitment to Jesus. That's the Pharisees. And you'll have noticed that Jesus also targets his own disciples. Those who have left all to follow him. Now that may not cover every single one of us this morning, but I think most of us fall into one of those groups. If you had no interest at all in religion, you probably wouldn't be here. And we find that our passage divides into two parts, two very unequal parts. First of all, Jesus exposes a deadly condition. We'll spend most of our time on that. And then very briefly at the end, we'll notice that Jesus gives a wake-up call in the light of this deadly condition. So first of all, Jesus exposes a deadly condition. Clean on the outside, rotten on the inside. Chapter 11, verses 37 to 52. This isn't the first time that a Pharisee has invited Jesus to dinner. And it doesn't necessarily mean this host is sympathetic to Jesus. We know the religious leaders are trying to gather evidence against Jesus. And this may well be another attempt to do that. But Jesus accepts the invitation. And immediately, as far as the Pharisee is concerned, Jesus makes a major blunder. He doesn't wash his hands. It's worth pointing out that hand washing wasn't a matter of hygiene in this culture. It was a matter of Jewish ritual and tradition. The Old Testament did not command it, but it had come to be seen as necessary for ritual purity among the Jews. The Pharisee is surprised when he sees Jesus disregard the tradition. And Jesus takes the opportunity to warn this Pharisee and to call him to repent. Look again at verse 39. The Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. 
You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. No one would be foolish enough to wash the outside of their dishes and ignore the inside. But that's exactly what these religious people are doing with their lives. They're obsessed with being above reproach when it comes to external things, appearances. But they're making no attempt to address the greed and wickedness in their hearts. But Jesus says in verse 40, Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? Do you think God cares any less about your heart than he does about your behavior? The truth is, Jesus is saying, he cares about both. We don't have the option of focusing on externals and ignoring our heart. We cannot compartmentalize our lives into private and public, inner life and outer life. Every part of us must honor God. And this challenge applies to both of Jesus' target groups. If you're a religious person, if you're focused on living a good, moral life, but your heart has never been made new through faith in Christ, then Jesus says you may well be clean on the outside, but you're still rotten on the inside. And you can't please me with a rotten heart. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've come to him in repentance. You've received forgiveness and new life. To you, Jesus says, be on your guard. Don't allow rottenness to take root and spread in your heart. Don't be complacent. Don't be satisfied with getting the external things right. Fight against sin in your heart too. In verse 41, Jesus calls to all of us. The NIV says, Give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. That's really not the best translation. A better translation reads, Give as alms those things that are within and everything will be clean for you. Almsgiving was giving money or food sacrificially to the poor. But Jesus' point here is not about giving to the poor. He's saying we're to take equal care to give to God the things that are inside, our hearts and ambitions. We're to take equal care to hand over those things as we do about handing over external things to God. Jesus says if we're concerned to give our heart over to God, we'll find that we also get the externals right. Everything will be clean. So this is Jesus' challenge. We must avoid the deadly condition of being clean on the inside, but rotten. Clean on the outside, but rotten on the inside. The trouble is, of course, we're all very quick to excuse ourselves. Not many of us think of ourselves as being rotten on the inside. So if we're to be on our guard against hypocrisy, then we have to honestly examine ourselves. For those not committed to Jesus, self-examination ought to lead to a realization of our sin, our need for a Savior. And for the disciple, self-examination ought to remind us that we are still 
sinners saved by grace. Sinners who need to press on to greater holiness, greater Christ-likeness. And in this passage, Jesus gives us help to detect hypocrisy in our lives. He announces six woes, six examples of hypocrisy. We're not going to spend an equal amount of time on each of these. I mention that because we'll spend most of our time on the first one. The others really follow on from the first one. And the first woe comes in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Jesus says hypocrisy can take the form of focusing on easy areas of obedience while neglecting harder areas. Leviticus chapter 27 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So clearly the principle of giving a tenth is there in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees had turned it into an obsession, an art form. But they were not equally concerned with justice and the love of God. And yet we learned back in chapter 10, those are the two greatest areas of obedience. Justice corresponds to the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, love of God is the first great commandment. Now, it's not difficult to see why the Pharisees focused on tithing instead. When we looked at the Good Samaritan, we saw that loving your neighbor as yourself involves sacrifice, inconvenience. We called it costly mercy. Obeying the second great commandment is hard. What about the other great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. Relative to those two great commands, focusing on being precise about tithing was so much easier. It was so much more doable. And the bonus was, you could earn a religious reputation by being known as a super keen tither. But of course, this approach is just hypocrisy. It gave the impression they were keen to obey God. But the truth is, they were keen to find easy, outwardly impressive ways to obey God. But we can't pick and choose our areas of obedience. So Jesus is not calling the Pharisees to stop giving a tenth to God. He's calling them to pursue obedience in all areas of life. To have the same commitment to the hard matters of obedience as they do to the easy matters like dividing up their garden herbs. So let's ask ourselves, do we have this tendency to focus on easy areas of obedience while neglecting harder areas? Every culture, every generation, and every church fellowship has its own highly esteemed areas of obedience. Those areas of obedience might be well and good 
and biblical. But the danger is that we feel self-satisfied if we're succeeding in those areas. We might earn a big reputation among others, even though we may be neglecting other harder areas of obedience. Let's think of a couple of examples. Some of us might elevate attendance at meetings to the pole position. We might make that our test of how a person is doing spiritually. So if you're in the building whenever the doors are open, you're obviously on top of things spiritually. And there is no doubt, Scripture insists that we do not give up meeting together. It's vital for our spiritual health. But depending on our home circumstances and our stage in life, attendance at meetings might be an easy area of obedience for us. Maybe there are no kids in the house. Maybe we have plenty of time on our hands. And so we must hear the challenge to also pursue obedience in areas that are hard for us. Maybe going out to gather the harvest. Reaching out to our neighbors who don't know Christ. Others of us won't be so hot on joining together for fellowship. That might be a hard area of obedience for us. We might find it easier to offer hospitality, to do deeds of practical service. And again, we don't need to look any further than the Good Samaritan to see that those things are important. But we must be careful to also pursue obedience in areas that are hard for us. Maybe the discipline of private devotional time. Listening to God and talking to God. Maybe the discipline of coming to pray with our brothers and sisters here at the prayer meeting. And we could go on and on. Some of us find it hard to tame our gossiping and bitter tongues. Some of us find it hard to forgive. And so we're tempted to focus on some other area of obedience. Maybe sexual purity. Maybe we feel pretty on top of things in that particular area. Others of us may excuse our lack of sexual purity and focus on something that's easier for us. Maybe chatting with visitors or giving our money to God. The point is we can't pick and choose what we give to God. He has a claim on the whole of us, heart, soul, strength, and mind. If we're content to give him only the stuff we find easy, that is hypocrisy. For religious people, it's hypocrisy to say, I will give you my good deeds, God, but I won't humble myself and turn my heart over to your son, Jesus. For those of us who have turned their hearts over to Jesus... Those of us who call Jesus Lord, it is hypocrisy to say, here's a list of areas where I submit to you, Lord. I'll give you my obedience in these areas, but I'm afraid I can't commit to give you obedience in these other areas. Oh, I know none of us would ever put it like that, but is that how it works out in our life? It is a danger for all of us. 
So let's be careful. We're not just picking our favorite, our most convenient areas of obedience. Jesus calls us to pursue full obedience. And if we don't, he calls us fools. Let's ask him then what hard areas of obedience we might have been neglecting in our lives. This first woe lays the groundwork for the others. We can see that when we look at the second woe in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Serving God for personal acclaim rather than God's glory. We've already touched on this when we said certain kind of obedience can earn us a reputation with others. The Pharisees were supposedly concerned with calling Israel back to obedience to God's law. Their goal was supposed to be God's glory. But actually, Jesus says, they were in love with the acclaim that came from being known as someone who cared for God's glory. And again, this is a danger for us. The New Testament is clear. We all have a gift. Therefore, we all have the ability to serve God's kingdom in some way. The danger is that our service can begin to be motivated by a desire for personal acclaim. The desire to have our ego stroked because of our giftedness. That is hypocrisy. Any ability we have comes from God. It's not down to us. How can we agree that God is the giver and then look for praise for ourselves? And we need to be clear, the issue here is not whether we actually get personal praise. The issue is whether or not we're seeking it. It is entirely possible to be fairly anonymous and unnoticed and yet be seething with resentment because we want to be noticed. That's no better than the person who's getting the attention and glorying in it. So how do we know if we're in danger of this kind of hypocrisy? Well, have you ever caught yourself saying or maybe thinking something like this? It's not that I'm looking for recognition, but... It's not that I'm serving to get praise, but... As soon as we tag on a but, what we're saying is, I know I shouldn't be looking for recognition. I know I shouldn't serve to get praise, but I want some all the same. Have we ever felt ourselves discouraged in our service? Maybe even a bit depressed. Because our work seems to go unnoticed or underappreciated. When we feel that way, surely we are in danger of serving God for personal acclaim rather than God's glory. After all, if our service is truly for God's glory, we won't care if no one notices it except Him. Now let me quickly add, we are called to encourage one another. We should notice and we should command those who serve faithfully. Jesus is not talking here, though, to the ones called to do the encouraging. 
He's addressing the person whose heart longs for praise from others. It's very possible for impressive acts of service to come from a wicked heart, a heart that's hungry for human recognition. And so we must continually be calling our hearts to attention because we serve to advance God's kingdom, not our own. The third woe comes in verse 44. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. Claiming purity while spreading the plague. According to Old Testament law, coming into contact with a dead body made a person ceremonially unclean. And here the point seems to be that the Pharisees have a reputation for holiness, but they're actually impure. They're like graves that are not signposted as graves. And so they're polluting those who look up to them and follow them. They're spreading the plague of hypocrisy to those people they influence. We often talk today about role models. And sometimes it sounds as if we can pick and choose whether to be a role model or not. But actually, every one of us is a role model. We're presenting a model of how to live. The real question is, are we a positive or negative role model? And in this context, the point is, are we modeling a life of hypocrisy? Are we sending the message to those who watch us that it's really only the external things that matter? Or it's only the easy areas of obedience that matter? Or that it's okay to serve God for our own glory? And when we talk about being a role model, one mistake is to think the answer is just to put on a better outward show. Well, if people are going to be watching me, I'd better be more careful to hide certain things. But that only takes us deeper into hypocrisy. It only spreads the plague to others. The message then becomes, well, if you can't overcome sin, then hide it and deny it. And certainly we do not want to glory in our sin. But neither do we want to give the impression that we're without sin. That simply sends the message that the worst sin is admitting to sin. It sends the message that we must keep up appearances at all costs. And yet the book of James calls us to confess our sins to each other. How many Christians have spent years struggling alone with some sin? Either because they're too proud to confess it and to seek help and support or because they've observed other Christians and they've learned that the thing to do is to keep sin hidden rather than confess it and seek to deal with it. But the pathway out of hypocrisy involves confession and honesty about sin. Each of us must be willing to be open about our sin with a brother or a sister that we trust. And if someone is to pluck up the courage to come to us about their sin, we mustn't treat them like a leper 
like an unclean outcast. To do that would imply that we don't know what it is to wrestle with sin. It would spread the plague that says the most important thing about sin is to keep it hidden. When a Christian sends that message, he or she is like a grave that's not signposted as a grave. Christians are supposed to spread life and truth, not to spread the plague of hypocrisy. And this leads us directly into Jesus' fourth woe giving condemnation without compassion. People are never going to be open about their struggles with sin unless they know they'll receive compassion when they confess. When sin is only met with condemnation, hypocrisy will thrive. Sin will stay hidden. Look at verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, When you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. The experts in the law assisted the Pharisees in interpreting the law. It seems some of them have been invited to this dinner party. But this particular lawyer may have wished that he'd kept his mouth shut. Certainly the religious leaders had a commendable desire for God's law to be obeyed. But Jesus says they have produced a culture of condemnation. Life for them was one big hunt to find and condemn the lawbreaker. And the result was those who sought to please God were simply crushed spiritually. The Pharisees were happy to pile on the burden, but they gave no help to those struggling under the weight of the burden. There was no mercy and compassion for those who collapsed under the weight. These religious leaders had a responsibility to help the fallen get up again and to move on in obedience. So the point here is not that we should go soft on sin or that we should downplay God's commands. The point is, when a brother or sister sins and comes clean about their sin, we must offer biblical compassion. Biblical compassion does not pretend that sin doesn't matter. But where there is repentance and remorse over sin, biblical compassion comes to the sinner with God's grace. So let's ask ourselves, are we happy to pounce on those who fall into sin? But are we unwilling to put in the hard work of restoring them gently? That's how Paul puts it in Galatians. Let's never stop condemning sin. But let's never stop at condemnation. We must also help those who are crushed by the burden of their sin. After all, you and I are only in the kingdom because of God's grace. It would be hypocritical of us to refuse God's grace to other sinners. Verse 
verses 47 to 51, give a fifth example of hypocrisy. Revering God's word, but rejecting its challenge. Verse 47, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. The prophets in view here are the Old Testament prophets, those who brought God's call of repentance to the people of Israel. And if you've read the Old Testament, you'll know that those prophets and their message were not well received. And here Jesus points to these religious leaders around the table in front of him, and he says, you supposedly honor the prophets. You build graves as memorials for them. But you have the same rebellion in your hearts that caused your ancestors to reject the prophets' God-given message and to kill the prophets. And Jesus says to these leaders, that same rebellion is causing you to reject my message and to plot to kill me. You make a big show of revering God's word, but in fact you are rejecting its challenge. And Jesus goes on to say that his generation will bear the same guilt as the previous generations that killed the prophets. If we apply this to ourselves, we can notice that as a church, we take great care, don't we, to put God's word at the center of all we do. And so we, of all people, are always in danger of this kind of hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of professing to revere God's word while quietly rejecting its challenge. If we can interact with God's word without being unsettled and convicted and changed, then we are falling into hypocrisy. God says his word is like fire, it's like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. If we truly open ourselves up to this fire, we're going to feel uncomfortable pretty often. If we let this hammer strike home in our hearts, we're going to find our hearts getting broken up pretty often. Someone has said, to sit under the text of Scripture is to be uncomfortable. We ought to be suspicious if it makes us more comfortable. To sit under the text of Scripture is to be uncomfortable. We ought to be suspicious if it makes us more comfortable. Yes, it's true. God works through Scripture to reassure us of his love and his care. He does. Yes, his word does come to comfort the afflicted, to bind up our wounds. But God's word also comes to afflict the comfortable. Because God loves us, his word will always be burning away at our sin, pounding away at the rebellion in our hearts. It will not go easy on our sin. You and I must beware of trying to avoid the fire and the hammer. It's entirely possible to give lip service 
to the power and authority and sufficiency of God's Word. To elevate God's Word in our services. And yet all the while be shutting our hearts to its challenge. All the while looking for ways to tame and domesticate the message of God's Word. We must beware of revering God's Word but rejecting its challenge. Now Jesus comes to his final woe, hindering those who are looking for life. Verse 52. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. In their day, the Pharisees and lawyers pointed the way for those who were seeking to know God. And because they emphasized externals only, Jesus says they have taken away the key to knowing God. Does God care about our behavior? You bet he does. But is our behavior the key to knowing him? No, it's not. When those who are seeking God come into contact with us, we must not give the impression that the way to God is through conforming to a certain lifestyle. If we do that, we are hindering those who are looking for life. Yes, it's true. Those who have found life, those who have been reconciled to God, will take on different priorities. We will spend our money and our time in different ways than we did before. We will turn away from certain behaviors. And we will turn towards certain other behaviors. But all those changes are the fruit of being reconciled to God. They're not the basis for reconciliation with God. Our acceptance with God comes through God's grace made available in Jesus. That is the key to knowing God. And so we must be careful to send a clear message to the world around us. At its heart, the Christian faith is not about what you and I do or don't do. It's about what God has done. He sent his son to die for a lost world. So if we as Christians are known only for condemning certain lifestyles and certain behaviors then we're known for the wrong thing. We must hold out the key of eternal life. That key is the good news that guilty, hell-deserving sinners can be accepted by God through Jesus Christ. Jesus has finished his woes. And what he's just done is the spiritual equivalent of picking up a machine gun and spraying the room with bullets. No one in there has escaped his convicting missiles. But sadly, terribly sadly, none of these religious people are willing to repent of their hypocrisy. Look at verse 53. When Jesus left there, The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, hoping to catch him in something he might say. 
Jesus has confronted these men with the fire of God's word. But their only thought is to fire back at him. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, to those committed to following him. And he gives a wake-up call. Hidden things will not stay hidden. In the middle of chapter 12, verse 1, we're told, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Jesus turns to his followers and gives them a call to constant vigilance against hypocrisy. He says it's like yeast. It can quietly spread and infect the whole person. Just like a small amount of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Little grains of hypocrisy can lead eventually to a double life. We must be ruthless with any grains that we find in our lives. And Jesus gives us one great incentive to do that. He tells us that hidden things will not stay hidden. Our hypocrisy may be exposed in this life, but it will most definitely be exposed when this life is over. The Apostle Paul agreed. In 1 Corinthians he says, When the Lord comes, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of men's hearts. One day we will stand before the God who sees all our hypocrisy, and all will be disclosed. Every treasured sin, every bit of spiritual play-acting or covering up, God is already fully aware of all of it. And so what more motivation do we need to root out hypocrisy in our lives? What more motivation do we need to pursue purity both inside and out? Let's pray. Search us, O God, and know our hearts, every single one of us. See if there is any offensive way in us. Show it to us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Father, we thank you that this morning, this morning of all mornings, we have this communion table set before us this memorial to your great grace and mercy. Maybe your word has come primarily this morning to wound us, to confront us with our sin. And we do not want to turn away from the fire and the hammer of your word. We want to have our sin burnt up 
We want any hardness in our hearts to be broken up. But we thank you that we do not need to go from here crushed by our sin. We look at the bread and wine on this table and we remember that you crushed your son in our place. Our sin is unforgivable, but you have forgiven it. Not by sweeping it under the carpet and trying to forget about it. You have forgiven it by heaping it upon Jesus. That's how we are forgiven for our sin. So even as you show us our sin, will you help us look to the cross? Will you melt our hearts with the great love we see at the cross? Then will you give us a new desire and new power to turn from our sin? We want to honor you with our whole lives, inside and out. Amen. We're going to look to the cross as we sing, You are beautiful beyond description. And then we'll stay still.